morning. Good morning. Welcome to Woodside Community Church. I'm so glad you guys are, are with us on this cold, cold morning. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, um, verses 1 through 12. If you want to go ahead and begin turning there, be on page 845 in your Pew Bibles. Page 845. Um, listen, I'm just going to apologize. I'm going to go ahead and apologize up, up front. All right? Last week, our sermon was on health. Not a particularly fun sermon. This week our sermon is on divorce. Right? That's a rough two weeks in a row, right? We've got hell followed by divorce. Uh, but don't blame me. You know, I don't. I don't pick um, what we talk about. Blame Mark. Right? We're just we're following Mark's order here in in God's word. Um, uh, this is this is his fault, not mine. I promise. Um, so so once again we have another light, warm, um, uplifting sermon on on divorce. Um, kidding, of course. But but listen. We've got to talk about this because Jesus talks about it and because it is such a prevalent thing in our society um, today. But I, I will confess to you up front that I am, I am more nervous about this sermon than I was about the sermon on, on hell. Because divorce is about as personal as it gets. And it is an extremely touchy and difficult and potentially explosive subject. Uh, I'm still new enough here that I don't know all of your life stories. But I know that just statistically based on the culture that we live in, that there are a number of people in here who are divorced. It is, it is so universal today um, that there is probably no one in here who has not been personally affected in, in some way by divorce, either yourself or your parents or, or your grandparents. We have all been um, affected um, by this. And as everyone knows, uh, divorce is about the most difficult and painful and messy thing in the world. Right? It, it hurts. And it hurts in a way that, that nothing else um, can. And we'll see in a little while why that is. But, but the point is that I'm acknowledging to you that I know that I am walking through a minefield here. And that there is all kinds of potential um, to, to offend someone. But, but here again, it is why we preach expositionally. Remember, this is why we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Because my job is simply to explain to you what God's Word says, right? So what follows is to the best of my ability, not what I think, right? But our job is to understand as accurately as we can what, what, what Jesus thinks and what God's Word um, says. So remember back to last week when we, we talked about how many people, Christians included, really struggle with the concept of hell. Well, listen, it's the same thing um, with divorce. But, but one of my points last week was that if Christianity is the truth, right, not just the, you know, some creation of one particular culture, but the actual truth from God, then we should expect it to make us uncomfortable in places. And we should expect it to kind of challenge us and to change our thinking on some area or another, right? So divorce may, again, be another one of those spots. Truth is not affected um, by what we think. It is not affected by our personal experiences, right? Truth is truth. Just because there are things that I have personally really struggled with and gone through in my past does not give me kind of the freedom to try and to justify and explain away um, those things. No, listen, it's, you know, God's word is God's word, and we want to look at it and see what it has to say about this difficult um, subject. So listen, I'm asking you up front, I'm asking you to, to bear with me. I'm asking you not to, to jump to conclusions or, or to jump all over me or to think I'm personally attacking you. I have no one in mind here when I preach this sermon. I am preaching um, the next text that we are on. And there's no, it is not my desire or my goal to attack or beat anyone down. Right? My, my goal is to look at what the Bible has to say about marriage and kind of about um, divorce, explain what Jesus says, look at the difficulty and the pain, but then also to really make sure we hit at the end the, the just the great love and the forgiveness and the healing that we can find, divorced and not divorced, um, at, um, with Jesus Christ. Right? But we need this today. Listen, our, our society is a divorce society. You just Google it, right? And you get like the first thing, they're like, no fault divorce, $299, right? Just click on this website, right? It says, Easy as possible. It's encouraged. Uh, and so it's just something we've got to address because, listen, that's honestly what Jesus' culture was like as well. Right? And that's what we're going to look at. He's speaking into a culture that was very similar to ours. Now, 
and had a whole semester's class just on this topic, right? So we obviously cannot cover everything um, that we need to cover, and it's a very complicated issue. But we're going to hit um, some of the important points and try to at least kind of get an overview uh, of the issue. So, so three things that I want to do. Um, we're going to first look at the Pharisees' concern. We're going to see how their concern was, quite simply, uh, how can we get out of this marriage, right? That, that's all that they were looking for. Then we're going to look at Jesus' concern, which was God's design for marriage, his original intent. And then we're going to close by looking at maybe some of the concerns that we have, right? What about the exceptions? What do we, what do, we do with this today, right? So we're going to do this from, from Mark chapter 10, um, verses 1 through 12. Right, follow along in your, in your Bibles as I read. This is God's word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Right, let's, let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, we, I, come to you and confess my great need um, for you um, right now. Father, I need you to give me lots of wisdom and lots of um, grace and kindness and love in dealing in a difficult um, passage um, like this. Father, I pray that you would work and apply these truths um, to our hearts. Father, that we would be paying attention, uh, we would... Um, approach this text as we would approach any other text, um, Father, as your word, your revelation um, to us. But Father, we confess that this is difficult and this is, this is personal and sometimes this, this topic hurts. So Father, give us um, patience with your word. Father, work in our hearts. Father, um, show us uh, the truth of your design for marriage and the difficulty of divorce. But Father, again, we just pray so much more that we would understand Jesus Christ and we would understand grace and forgiveness and life. Um, through his death. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, well, let's start, by, let's set the stage for Jesus' response by looking first at the Pharisees, right? We're told that, again, they've come, again, not to learn. They're not interested in learning about marriage or divorce. It says they have come to trap Jesus, right? How in the world could a question about divorce trap Jesus? Well, back in verse 1, we're, we're told that Jesus, remember, Basically, everything we looked at has been up in Galilee, right? That, the whole ministry. And now at this point, Jesus is he's not going to be back in Galilee again. He is he's heading south. He, he is on his way with his sights set on the cross. And that's where Jesus is going. So it is on his way here um, that he goes to beyond the Jordan, we're told. And this region is called the, the region of Perea. And Perea was the area that was under the rule of Herod Antipas, right? Do you remember Herod Antipas? We, we met him back in, in Mark chapter 6. Remember, Herod was kind of the king, kind of, of that area, right? He decided that he had fallen in love with his brother's wife. Maybe it was because her name was Herodias, and they thought that was cool, Herod and Herodias. But he's in love with his brother's wife, who's actually like his grandniece as well. It's really confusing and gross. Um, but he has her divorce his brother, and then he takes her as his wife, right? So there's a divorce, there's an adultery, they, they come together, and it's incest as well. It's really complicated. And, and John the Baptist, right, he, he speaks out against it. He, he says, listen, this was wrong. We just lost the mic. Mike is dead. We're going to school here. All right, we'll get back to that later. Thank you. All um, right, so John the Baptist calls him out and just says, listen, he, he calls sin, sin. And because of that, Herodias, remember, gets all offended and she has her husband. She arrests John and there's a long story, weird, and eventually manages to have John beheaded for speaking out against her divorce. Right? And this is, it's possible that this is what the Pharisees were after. 
They're thinking, all right, now we're in Herod's territory. Remember, Herod just killed John for speaking about out against his divorce. So if we can get Jesus to say something negative about divorce, apply that to Herod's divorce, then maybe Herod will cut off Jesus' head as well and all our problems will be solved. Right? So they're trying to trap him and get him to say something negative about Herod and get Jesus beheaded. Right? But there's even more to it than that. And Matthew's record of their question kind of gives us a little more um, information. Remember, right, Matthew and Mark and Luke sometimes are recording the same stories from, from different perspectives. So in Matthew 19, we have this exact same story, right, and Matthew gives us kind of a little bit more information as to what the Pharisees said. Right, in Matthew 19, verse 9, he, he says this is their question when they come to him. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right, they're asking for, for any reason. Can we divorce? Not for any reason. Like, can we divorce our wives for whatever we want? That is what they are asking Jesus, and that's important because there was not a question at that time um, if, if divorce was permissible. They all agreed that it was. Right? The question was over on on what grounds was it permissible, and the debate revolved all around Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four. Right? And that's where the Pharisees' question is coming from um, here. In Deuteronomy 24.1, Moses writes, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he goes on, we'll stop there. But here's the debate. Right? If he finds in her some indecency, right? or the other translations say some uncleanness or something offensive, well, the question is, what constitutes something indecent? Well, that's what the debate was about, right? Because Moses doesn't tell us specifically what that thing is. Right, so there's this huge debate in Jesus' time over on these grounds of divorce and what was allowed and what wasn't. And there were two competing schools of thought, right? There, were the, there was the liberal school and there was the conservative school. We've got the Democrats and the Republicans, and they're just fighting about it um, again. And so the conservative line of thinking followed a rabbi named Rabbi Shammai, right? And they maintained that some indecency referred only to some sort of, of sexual immorality or, or adultery or something of that nature, right? So divorce is only legitimate when that has happened. But the more liberal side, and listen, the side that had won the day, right, the far more popular side, this is what everyone held to, was argued, uh, this guy's name was Rabbi Hillel, right, you've heard of in colleges, right, there are Hillel sometimes, this is named after this guy. Rabbi Hillel argued that something indecent was basically anything that you want it to be. And we have accounts written from various rabbis making the case of, you know, what was permissible and what's not. Like, one argued that, listen, if, your wife, if the wife burned the dinner, <laughs> that's... That's it. That's legitimate reason you can write her a certificate of divorce and be done with it. She salted the dinner too much, one of them writes. Listen, that's, that's grounds for divorce. One makes a long case that, listen, if you just decide that someone else is more attractive and you like her more, you know what? That's permissible grounds for divorce. Leave your wife. Go find a new, younger, more fun wife. Right? So they basically open it up to divorce for whatever you possibly wanted it um, to be. Right? And that's the prevailing view of the day. You can divorce your wife for whatever you want. Right? And so it's obvious by the Pharisees' question here that they're, listen, they're not concerned about marriage. They're not actually worried about learning um, about divorce or, or God's law. They're looking to find an out. Right? Their, their concern is themselves. Right? Their concern is how can I get out of a marriage and how can I get on to a better, more fun marriage. Right? So again, that, that's the Pharisees' concern. Completely selfishly motivated. What can I do to get out of a marriage? Right? And they're just trying to trap Jesus. But, as is the case every time, Jesus just answers brilliantly. So he's, he's going to say to them in effect, All right, I see um, what you're actually concerned about. <laughs> I don't really care. I'm going to show you what God is concerned about. I'm going to show you what I am concerned about. And he skillfully does this with just a few short words there in verse 3. He says, what did Moses command you? Right? What has Jesus just done? Right? He's, he's shifted the conversation away from their silly arguments and their man-made traditions, and he's kind of turned the spotlight back on God's word. He's saying in this phrase, what does the Bible say? He said, what does scripture say? And they answer him in verse 4. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. 
Again, no restrictions, no specifications, just give her a piece of paper and you can be done with her. And the Pharisees, as they so frequently did, they were, they were abusing God's word and twisting it to, to fit their own desires. We, we can't get into a detailed discussion of Deuteronomy 24, but Jesus makes it clear in verse 5 that they've completely misunderstood the passage. He says in verse 5, he said that this was written because of your hardness of hearts. Right? He's saying, listen, this is not how it was supposed to be. This is not what God wants, but, but he concedes this to you because of your sin. If you were to go and read and really study Deuteronomy 24, it's interesting, that chapter, it's not really about divorce. Right? Deuteronomy 24 is about protecting women. Right? Nowhere in God's law, nowhere does Moses command divorce. Right? This isn't like the, the other Ten Commandments. He's not saying, thou shalt divorce your wife if she burns your food. No, this is a, this is a concession. And it's in the form of an if-then statement. He says, if this situation has happened, then you are to do this. But Deuteronomy 24 is not condoning or encouraging the if. Right? It is not in any way saying, oh, go find something indecent about your wife so that you can get rid of her. No, it's simply saying, if this has happened, if this is going to happen, then you need to do this. Right? You need to give your wife a certificate of divorce. And listen, that was a really important thing for women 2,000 years ago. Without the certificate of divorce, you could not be remarried, and you were basically doomed to a life of absolute poverty. Right? It was not a good time to be a divorced single woman. Right? So here is God giving a concession to what is happening and saying, give this woman her, her, her right to remarry, her right to, to, you know, to find security and comfort in, in someone else. Right? So again, he's trying to protect women here in this law. And then at the very end there, Deuteronomy 24, he says that, listen, if you divorce her and give her that certificate, you are never allowed to go back and marry her again. Right? Again, this is an extremely progressive law at that time. It's not encouraging divorce. Divorce is not the focus. Its primary point was to allow a woman to be remarried, and its primary point was to prevent a, a, a man from remarrying a woman he had previously divorced. It was to protect women from abusive, compulsive husbands who, who may change their mind and, and kind of try and force them to come back, right? This, this law was designed with women in mind, which was, listen, very rare back then. This wasn't happening in any of the other surrounding cultures, right? Give this woman a certificate for her own protection so that she can be remarried. Right? And so the point is that the Pharisees were misusing the law. Right? They were taking something that was designed to protect women and then using it for the exact opposite. They're using it to abuse women and to abandon women for even the smallest of reasons. And Jesus rebukes them for this. Right? He attacks their abusive traditions and he takes them all the way back to the beginning. Right? He takes them even earlier in the law of Moses to, to what we read in our scripture reading. Back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. He says, I see your concern. It is a sinful and misguided concern. I'm going to show you my concern. God's concern. And he quotes there from, from two places in Genesis. In verses 6 through 8 he says, But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Right, there are kind of three quick things in there about marriage that I want to just, just touch on real, real shortly. Uh, these are important for us, especially in our culture. Right? Number one, Jesus says that marriage is God's design. Right? Number two, he says that marriage is a one flesh union. And number three, he says that marriage is designed to be permanent. Right? So first, marriage is God's design. He says from the beginning, God made them male and female. In verse 9, he says that God has joined the two together. Since God has created us, since God has created marriage, he has the right and the authority to say what it is and what it isn't. And as God's creatures... We do not have the right or the authority to define marriage, right? We can't just make marriage something that we want it to be. 
Right? If marriage is something that God designs, then a bunch of people in the 21st century just declaring it to be something completely different doesn't actually change marriage. Right? Our personal opinions have no effect on the truth. Right? If I declare that my DVD player is a toaster, right, it won't change the fact that my DVD player was never designed to make toast. Right? Thus, to just declare that and to shove a piece of bread in there right, is going to be disastrous. Right? It's just going to ruin the DVD player right? because it was designed to play movies. Right? Marriage is the same way. God has designed it specifically to work in a certain way. He designed it. It is his. So it works best when we follow those guidelines. Right? And that's the mistake that the Pharisees are making. They're trying to define what they could and could not do with marriage. And Jesus just shuts them down. He says, it is not about what you think. It's about God. He designed marriage. And now, listen. I'm sure some of you are thinking, this obviously has, has implications for, for the gay marriage debate that is, that is raging in our country. And sadly, this sermon is just not the time that we can really get into that. And I promise we will, at some point, get into that and address that from a biblical perspective. We, we need to know how we can explain and defend truth without coming off like complete jerks, right? We need to be able to stand up and, and to stand for what the Bible teaches while at the same time loving and serving those who may struggle with this and who may disagree um, with us, right? But listen, that's, that's another sermon for another day. But then again, obviously the implication that God has designed marriage to work in a specific way has implications um, for that. If you're really uncomfortable with that, if you're really concerned about that, I would love to get into it and, and talk with you about that after um, the service. Um, but back to, back to our passage. So God designed marriage, right? And the second thing that we're told is that God has designed marriage to be a one flesh union, right? And here's where the Christian view of marriage is so much higher than the, the present day view of marriage. Because today, marriage is nothing more than a contract. Right? It is a temporary legal agreement between two consenting parties. Right? It is primarily about attraction and self-fulfillment. It is primarily about feeling good about yourself. Right? And so, listen, when that's not happening, when you're not being fulfilled and not fulfilling yourself through that marriage, you know, culture tells us, you know what, move on from that one and find another one. Right? That, that's, that's kind of what society says. Right? But Jesus says here that marriage is so much more than just a contract. He says it is a one flesh union. Right? And in fact, we could call it a one flesh reunion. Right? And that goes back to Genesis as well. Remember, God, he, he shapes and forms and he creates the man. He declares that it is not good for man to be alone. And then what does he do? He literally takes part of the man and then fashions and forms um, the woman. Right? She is literally part of his flesh. So when God brings the first two together, it is a reunion, right? The man's flesh being brought back to him. He is being fulfilled and completed by the woman, right? And listen, this isn't just a physical thing, right? It is not just sex that makes the one flesh marriage. That is, that is absolutely part of it, but that's not all of it because this, the one flesh idea is completely total, right? The word flesh in, in the Hebrew. It can also mean persons, right? We're not just two bodies, but we are two persons come together as one person, is what he's saying. One flesh, same thing as one person. And listen, that is why divorce is so painful and so messy, because it is literally, and I'm using the word correctly, it is literally like ripping off a part of your own body, right? It is the one flesh being torn into two. Right? And that's why it is just, it is so brutal and hard to, to get over. Right? God made marriage. He, he designed marriage and he designed it to be a one flesh reunion of man and woman. And that leads to our third thing that Jesus says about marriage. Right? He says it is permanent. Right? One flesh. Right? One is not divisible into two wholes. Right? Two is, but, but one is not. And so Jesus says to his disciples, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Right? So he designed it to be permanent. He designed marriage to last um, until death. 
Listen, it's clear that Jesus takes this pretty seriously. Those last two verses, 11 and 12, are are pretty intense. So he's taking a stance that is directly opposed to the Pharisees that are questioning him. They're concerned with justifying divorce for any reason. He's concerned with getting back to God's original design for marriage. A lifelong, one flesh union between a man and a woman. Let's fast forward 2,000 years in time to, to today, right? And to some of maybe the, the personal concerns that we have when we come to a text like this. Because listen, I, I'm sitting here, I'm watching you, I can read your mind just a little bit, I have that ability, right? And you're, you're thinking, right? Well, well, well this, listen, this, this, this isn't very nice. This, this is harsh. This is, this is rough. This is, this is difficult. Where's the, where's the love? Where's the forgiveness? Where's the grace? Who, who are you to judge me and tell me what I can and cannot do and what is right and what is wrong? And what about the exceptions, right? Are, are there any exceptions? And listen, honestly, it, it seems like there are. Right? And I purposely left that until kind of more towards the end here because I'm trying to take the approach that Jesus is taking in the passage. Right? Here, Mark is not concerned with the exceptions. Right? Mark is concerned with the original design. Right? He's concerned with what marriage is supposed to be in God's eyes. And that's the case that I'm trying to make. Right? That Mark 10 is not primarily about divorce. It is about marriage and about God's original design But the Pharisees are obsessed with divorce. Maybe you're just sitting here thinking, like, all right, what about the exceptions? Get to the exceptions, right? But listen, you don't learn how to fly a plane by just focusing on, like, crash landings, right? You don't prepare for war or for battle by just kind of focusing on and studying how to retreat. No, that's not, listen, we don't learn about and understand marriage by just focusing on the end of marriage, And if you've just been sitting here the whole time waiting to see if there was like some sort of exception or or some way to kind of, you know, get out of feeling bad or justifying anything, listen, you've missed the point because our our focus needs to be on God's original design, right, and seeing what he has to say about it first, right, that's the priority. And then now we're going to look at the exceptions. And it does seem that scripture gives us two major exceptions. But again, I'll say that there is a lot more debate about this than you, than you can imagine. There are about 100 different perspectives on the issue of divorce and remarriage. There's the patristic view, Erasmian view, betrothal view, preterative view, consanguinity view, unlawful marriage, inclusivist, exclusivist, interpolation. And there's more. Like, that's just in my book, right? That's just nine of them just kind of off the top of my, in my textbook. There's just so much debate over this difficult issue, Right? But if we, if we just had Mark chapter 10, if we just had this passage, there would be no, no debate. No divorce, no remarriage, Jesus says. But we don't just have Mark 10, right? So flip just a few chapters over to your left to Matthew chapter 19. And let's look at that for a second. Matthew 19 and Matthew chapter 5 are referred to as the exception clause, right? And remember, this is the same story. This is the same exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, but Matthew kind of gives us a little more detail um, than Mark does. Listen to what Jesus says in uh, chapter 19, verse 9. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So, no exception in Mark. And by the way, Luke 18 right, doesn't include the exception either. But in Matthew here, there is a seemingly clear exception. Jesus says it again in Matthew 5, verse 12. Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So you see now why this is so complicated, right? And I'm not going to bore you with the hours and hours of of details kind of about this. But what I want to do is kind of quickly lay out for you kind of the majority Protestant position, right? And this is the most um, straightforward reading of the text. or This is kind of the position that, that I currently hold. Right? And Jesus seems to make it clear in Matthew that there is no divorce and no remarriage except in cases of marital infidelity. Right? And so the question is, why does Mark leave out the exception? <laughs> Good question. We, we're not sure. We're not 100%. But it seems um, that, that he does so because of their different audiences. Right? So remember, Matthew is writing his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. And Mark 
is writing his gospel primarily to a Gentile Roman audience. Right? And where divorce was, was pretty common and pretty easy in the Jewish culture at that time, it was far more common and far more easy in the Roman culture at that time. Right? There was so much promiscuity, there was so much immorality, there was so much laxness, that there, was just, there were no marriages staying together. People were just running amok, just doing kind of whatever they wanted. So what Mark's readers needed, in light of their context was Jesus' absolute teaching on what marriage should be, right? And listen, isn't our context so much like theirs, right? Oh, 2,000 years later, you know, 2014 America is the exact same thing as turn-of-the-century Rome, right? So much laxness and easy divorce, right? That's why we started with God's design for marriage. Because like the Pharisees, we tend to focus on divorce. We, we begin with the end, Right? Jesus, on the other hand, ends with the beginning, right? He says, this is how God designed marriage to be. This should be it, the end. So instead of asking, you know, what will God let me get away with? We should be asking, what is God's design and what is God's desire for me in this situation? And as we saw, he says that marriage is to be a lifelong one flesh union. And so that's why I think Mark leaves out the exception clause, because of, of the context that he is writing into. But the fact that he doesn't include it does not negate the exception clause in, in Matthew, right? Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. So we have to take Jesus' words in Matthew 19 seriously. And he is teaching it seemingly there that divorce is permissible on the grounds of sexual immorality or, or unfaithfulness within a marriage. Now listen, he does not say that divorce is commanded. He says that divorce is permitted. Right? The Bible nowhere commands divorce. But because of sin, because of the hardness of our hearts, it does seem to allow these um, few exceptions. So remember, sex is not exclusively what makes a couple one flesh. Right? But listen, it's a very important part of it. Right? It is kind of the, the glue that binds together. It is the physical sign of the covenant. So, so there is clearly something more to sex than just the physical. Right? There is a spiritual binding aspect of it. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians, 7, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 speaks so strongly um, against sex outside of marriage. Right? In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16. Right? He basically says, when you have casual sex with someone, you are to some degree binding yourself to them. Right? And when you, have, um, when you do that, when you're a married person, and you do that outside of marriage with someone that is not your spouse, it is so destructive and so damaging to that original bond, right? to that covenant, that Jesus says the offended party has the right to seek for divorce. So, so do you see here how seriously the Bible takes sex? Right? Because our culture today loves to mock us and loves to mock the Bible's approach to sex. They said, oh, it's so restrictive and puritan and it's such a low view of sex. But do you see how, how the Bible's view is so much higher than the world's? Because the Bible says, listen, it is a gift, it is a good thing, it is wonderful from God, and we are to enjoy it in the context of marriage. Why? Because it is so much more than people think it is today. Right? They think it's just a physical act. It is just something that you can engage in, engage in casually. But the Bible says it's not just a physical act. Yes, it's physical. Yes, yes, it is good. The Bible encourages it. But it says that it is so much more than just the physical act, that it is a spiritual act as well. It is a, it is a binding act. So the Bible has a very high view of sex. Right? It tells us it is so much more than our world thinks that it is. And it just tells you that sex works best, and quite honestly, you'll get the most out of it, and you'll enjoy it the most when you use it in the context of marriage, how God designed it to work. Right? Remember back to the DVD player. Things work best when we use them based upon how God has designed them. So when this doesn't happen, right? when a married person seeks this outside of their marriage, because sex is such a powerful force, it also then has the potential to be such a destructive force. 
right? So there is then the possibility for divorce, right? So Jesus says, except in the cases of sexual immorality. And Paul gives one more exception in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Paul is talking in the context there about believers who are married to unbelievers. And he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Right, right before that, Paul has just told believers married to, told believers married to unbelievers, he said, listen, if they, if they love you and they want to stay in the relationship, stay in the relationship. Love them, serve them, pray for them, do everything that you can for them as a good spouse. Right, but he says here that, listen, if that person deserts or abandons or leaves or they pursue the divorce, then, then you are free. Then you are not bound. Right? So, so those are the two exceptions that we are given in the Bible. Right? Sexual morality and desertion. Right? Divorce on other grounds, according to Jesus, is illegitimate and it is, is sinful. And this is why it's so difficult because though so many marriages do um, end in divorce because of unfaithfulness, listen, many happen just because people simply do not get along or get tired of each other or want something new. That's what the Pharisees were doing, and that's what Jesus is speaking against here. So there are exceptions, but the exceptions do not change Jesus' very clear and very serious teaching in Mark 10. What God has joined together, let no man separate. But even that very strong statement implies that separating can and does happen. And when it does, Jesus is clear that it is wrong except in these two situations. So, so the question is, and what you've got to be thinking is, what do we do with this, right? Maybe you're, maybe you're feeling a bit beat down, right? Maybe you're like, man, this is just this is difficult, this is rough and serious. Why, why are we talking about this. Maybe you know without question that you have um, been a part of this. So, so what now, right? What, what do you do with this? Where in the world is the gospel? Where is the good news in a passage like Mark chapter 10? Well, I think it comes a few verses later in 10 verses, verse 45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? And you take that along with what we read back in Mark 3, verse 28, which says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Right? There's the good news. Right? Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. He came to give his life as a payment for sin. He says divorce, except for these two situations, is a sin, but it is not an unforgivable sin. Right? Divorce does not put you out of reach of God's grace. Listen, even if you have divorced for illegitimate reasons, listen, that, that, right, sure, that's, that's sin. But I'm a sinner too. My sin has just manifested itself in many different ways. But Paul declares the good news in 1 Corinthians 1.15 when he writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Yes, many divorces are our tragic sins, but Jesus is in the business of forgiving sins. Right? There is mercy, and there is healing, and there is forgiveness at the cross. Now, I've had someone ask me before, and you may be wondering this. You say, all right, you know, what if I realized that I've, that I've wrongly divorced my spouse, but what if I, I've already remarried? Right? What do I do now? Right? The people who actually ask and wonder, like, do I, do I divorce my, my current spouse and try and get back with, with the first one? No, absolutely not. All right? You do not fix sin by adding more sin on top of it. Right? Uh, you are called, according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, to remain as you are. Right? God does not desire more marriages and more families to be broken up. Right, but listen, there may be, there may need to be an acknowledgement of sin. There may need to be repentance. There may need to be a, a seeking of, of forgiveness um, from the other person, not, not to get back together with them, but to, but to, to display the gospel to them, to, to serve them, and hopefully kind of uh, for, give them a chance to, to forgive you and, and you know, to, to help them in maybe what they're struggling with. But listen, 
No, we do not correct sin by more sin. No, no one is called um, to divorce. Do, do not even wonder or consider um, that as an option. It's not, uh, that would not be a biblical approach to take. Paul says, remain as you are. Right? But it's very clear from all this that marriage is very important um, to God. Right? He, he's designed it, and he has designed it for our good, and he has designed it to be permanent. Right? The fact that there are some exceptions does not change that. Right? Sin's ability to break down a marriage does not call, to change how we are called to approach it as believers. Right? Jesus' teaching here is an, it's an attempt to kind of take us back to the ideal. He, he's showing us how it's meant to be and, and how it should be for his followers and how it can be for all of us with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because guys, listen, besides my, my salvation, right, marriage is, is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Right? It, it is through my marriage to Melissa that God has most shaped and sharpened and sanctified me. And listen, it is through marriage that he has confronted me with my own sinfulness and my own selfishness in a way that I just was completely unaware of. Right? Marriage was never designed or intended to just be easy and fun all the time. It was designed for our good. And sometimes that means that it has to be very hard. But hard can be good. Right? I would not be who I am today. I would not be able to stand in front of you today and do what I do if it was not for Melissa and how God has used her in my life to, to shape me and grow me and, and mature me. Right? God has changed me greatly. Sometimes it was absolutely miserable, right? Sometimes it was not a lot of fun being confronted with, with how sinful I actually was, right? But it was, it was for my own good, right? If I treated marriage like the Pharisees here are treating marriage, right? I could have gotten rid of Melissa the, the first time she, she burned my french fries or something. But, but listen, that would have been a disaster not just for her, but that would have been a disaster for me as well. God uses marriage for our good, to show us that we're not that great, and to change us. And that means that it won't always feel good, and it won't always be easy, right? But there's, that, that's not an excuse to get out, right? As Christians, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, he, he, he tells us to take our cue from Him and look at God's design for marriage, a, a permanent one-flesh union. Right? That, that won't be popular today, but, but we're never told that Christianity would be easy and, and popular. We need to wrap up, but I want to say kind of one maybe final word um, that kind of I crossed my mind as, as I was thinking through marriage and some of these things. Some of you may have completely checked out already because um, you're like, well, I, I'm single. This has nothing to do with me whatsoever, so, so I don't need to listen to this at all. Well, listen, that's wrong, right? A, a biblical understanding of marriage is critical for the single person as well. Because without a biblical understanding of marriage, you will either over-desire marriage or you will under-desire marriage. And either of those things can be crippling, right? Yes, God has designed marriage and he has designed it for our good. That is, that is all true. But sometimes we do a very poor job in our churches with our singles. Right? We have, in the church, we quite honestly, we've set up this, this culture that has a tendency to treat single people as second-class citizens. Right? And we, we quite often imply that, that something must be wrong with single people. Well, why, why is she still single? Well, you know, what's wrong with her? How, how is she not married now? Right? As if like, there's something wrong with that person because they are single. Which is then implying that marriage is inherently better than singleness. But listen, this quite simply is wrong. According to the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes about the blessings and the benefits of singleness. He calls singleness a gift. He says that it is a good thing, that it is blessed by God, and that it is actually something to be desired over marriage in some cases. And that it is actually in some ways, many ways, better than marriage. And this was revolutionary at that time. Right? Because Christianity was the first religion to de-idolize marriage. Right? It was the, the first religion to uphold singleness as a viable and sometimes desirable way of life. Right? Every other religion and every other culture made an absolute value out of marriage and out of having children. Right? Singleness was considered inherently inferior. But not so with Christianity. 
Because listen, if you think about it, the two most important figures in the faith, Jesus and Paul, both of them actually happen to be single. Right? So singles cannot thus be considered to be somehow less complete or less human or less fulfilled because Jesus was single. And he was the perfect, most fulfilled, and most complete man. Right? I'm saving it for a later sermon, but, but I skipped over one of the most important aspects of marriage from, from Ephesians chapter 5. And that is that marriage is a picture. It is a reflection of Jesus' relationship with us, with his people, with the church. And that fact demonstrates that marriage is not ultimate, right? It is, it is penultimate. It, it is under it is under ultimate. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is ultimate. That is what defines us. And that is what fulfills us. And that is great news to the single person and to the married person. Right? To the single person, that fact says that they are not less of a person for being single. They are somehow not less fulfilled or less complete because they are not married. Because their identity and their fulfillment comes through their relationship with Jesus Christ, right? So that is great news for the single person. But listen, it is great news for me as a married person as well. Because to the married person, that fact relieves your spouse of the great burden of, of having to be your identity and your ultimate fulfillment, right? You will crush your spouse if you try to find those things in them, right? They were never designed to fulfill you and identify you in that way. Jesus Christ was divined to, was designed to identify and fulfill you in that way. Right? So marriage ultimately being about his love for us points us to that fact that, that for singles there's completeness and there's love and there's identity in Jesus Christ. And for married people that our identity and our fulfillment is found also in Jesus Christ and not in the fact that we are married and not in our spouse. Right? So, so understanding marriage from a biblical perspective is just is so important for all of us, right? Because it is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of Jesus' sacrificial love and service of his bride, the church. And if marriage is that, if it is that picture of Jesus' love for us, then it becomes even more clear how, how, how terrible divorce is. Right? Because divorce is giving a, a false picture of the gospel. Right? Because the gospel is that Jesus will never leave us and he will never forsake us. We are called to be like him. We are called to follow him. And we are called to treat marriage as seriously as God does. And he designed it to be a permanent one flesh union. So let's, let's uphold that ideal in this place. But let's also not be discouraged. Right? There, is, there is forgiveness for even the worst of divorces. Listen, some of you have been the victims of just terrible divorces. But the good news is that that's not what defines you and that's not what identifies you. God is what identifies you. Grace is what identifies you. Divorce is not the end. It does not have the last word. God does. Right? And He is the place and he is the only place where we can turn and find comfort and peace, even after a terrible divorce. Because listen, we have all sinned, and we have all been hurt in many different ways. We have all actively sinned in many countless different ways, right? Someone who, there are many people uh, who have been divorced that are a lot better people than I am, right? Just the fact that someone is the divorcee does not make them less of a person than any of the rest of us, right? We are all equally sinners in God's eyes. Paul, right? One of the greatest guys who ever lived can stand up in front of everyone and say, listen, I am the chief of sinners. Listen, if Paul can do that, then I can stand here in front of you all and tell you that I am the chief of sinners. Right? There is nothing about me that is inherently better than any of you, no matter what you have been through. Right? And the good news is that there is forgiveness for my terrible sin, and there is forgiveness for your terrible sin. And that's what the gospel is, that God loves us anyways. Jesus died to forgive us and free us from the burden of that sin. And that's why what we're talking about here is so revolutionary. Right, because go 
you know, in the Catholic Church, if divorce is so frowned upon that it's almost like an unforgivable sin if you get divorced because of their understanding of, of salvation and, and how that works. But listen, religion tells you, you know, sustain your marriage, be really good, and kind of keep these rules, and then God will save you. That's what every religion tells you, right? You'll be good enough, and you'll be saved. But the gospel is just so fundamentally different. The gospel doesn't say be good enough. The gospel says you can't be good enough. Right? Jesus Christ says, I have not come for the good. I have not come for the righteous. I have not come for the healthy. I have come for the sick. I have come for the sinners. And I have come for the divorced. And that's the good news. That it is not your goodness or your moral standing or how well you keep the rules first that determines your salvation or your eternity. It is God's goodness, it is His grace, and it is His love for us that is displayed um, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Religion says, be good enough, make sure and don't get divorced, and impress God and He'll save you. The gospel says, you're terrible, but Jesus Christ is good, and Jesus Christ loves you, and Jesus Christ has given His life for you when you did not deserve it. And that is a fundamentally different message. Right? So do not hear me at all trying to make some sort of hierarchy or say, nope, all right, you didn't get divorced, great. Oh, you got divorced, uh-oh, you're trouble. No, listen, the gospel is that we are all on an equal playing field sin-wise, right? and that there's nothing that we can do about it. And the good news is that Jesus Christ has come in and he has worked to save us. Right? So there is forgiveness for divorce. There is forgiveness for adultery and theft and murder and all these things because of the work of Jesus Christ. Right? The gospel is not about what we do. It is about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Right? So we want to uphold his design and his ideal for marriage. But listen, we want to uphold so much higher the good news of the gospel, that there is grace and that there is forgiveness at the cross for anyone who, who comes to him in faith and repentance, right? So, so difficult topic, difficult sermon, but there's grace. There, there's always good news, and there's always grace um, with Jesus Christ. So let's, let's turn to him, and let's, let's close um, in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we, we come to you as sinners. Uh, we come to you broken in so many different ways, every single one of us, Father. We thank you that you are not the God of the good and the righteous, but you are the God of the broken and you are the God of sinners. So, Father, we, we ask um, that you um, comfort us. Father, Father, forgive me if I have handled this passage poorly. Father, this is a difficult, um, serious topic, Father. But I just pray um, that you would work and use it uh, and work through your word in spite of anything I may have said um, incorrectly. Father, I pray that everything that we do in this place would just emphasize your goodness and your grace. Father, it matters what we do. Uh, we, you call us um, to follow your son and to be like him. But Father, we will all fail miserably at doing that time and time again. But Father, you give more grace. Uh, and we, we thank you um, for that. We thank you that our standing with you is not dependent on our marital status. It is not dependent on our job. It is not dependent on our position of power. Our, our, our status with you is dependent solely on Jesus Christ, Father. Uh, and on his goodness, and on his perfection, and not on our own. And Father, that is good news for every single one of us. So we thank you, Father. Uh, we, we pray that you would convict us of sin. Show us areas in our lives where we may have made mistakes, and we may have been wrong. Pray we wouldn't, we wouldn't treat sin lightly, uh, Father. We would take it seriously because you take it seriously, Father. But that we would allow that sin to point us to the cross. We would allow that sin to drive us um, to your feet and to the place of grace and forgiveness. So, Father, I pray for anyone in here who is struggling with this and who is, is hurting um, from a difficult um, divorce. Father, I pray that you would bring them peace and comfort. Father, that you would be the one who identifies them and fulfills them, Father, and gives them life. And they would not, that none of us would find our identity in anything else, Father, not in our spouses, not in our jobs, not in our money or our accomplishments, but in Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are God of grace and mercy. And we thank you for Jesus. That's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.